Always great to see our church family as you gather together. And if it's your first time among us, welcome to this family. Uh, we do have coffee and donuts. It's a great time every time. We're so glad you're here. But what is your perception over church? If you've been walking with us for a while, we often refer to church as a hospital. And I want to let you know that in this hospital, we perform heart surgery every week. Now, we are performing today something more difficult than a triple bypass. Today, we are performing a surgery that some would say cannot be done. A surgery that is way too difficult to take our hearts of stone and move them to hearts of flesh, but we're going to get into it anyway. And so we're starting a series all about money, tithing. And let me address the elephant in the room. Wouldn't it be cool if there was actually an elephant in the room? Anyway, the elephant in the room that I know is here among us is, is this. I've been walking long enough with people in this church that some of you have been burnt by this topic and how it was handled in an imperfect church. And I'm real with that, and I heard those stories. Some of us saw the weekly email and, and wondered, you know, maybe it would be okay if I just slept a little bit longer or at least found a different house of worship if that's the series. Some of you looked down at the bulletin or maybe heard me tell you the topic and your heart kind of did a, oh. And you know why I know that? Well, because I am one of you. <laughs> a pastor is a person who understands how personal it can feel when talking about money. Who, who are you? Who is God to, to, to get into this? But if I am to be a good pastor... We need to talk about this. If you're part of what I think is a healthy church, this will be a regular topic. And let me tell you why. Because here's what's hanging in the balance. What's hanging in the balance isn't the neediness of God and, and what he requires of us. What's hanging in the balance isn't further ministry. What's hanging in the balance is your heart. And Jesus put it this way. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, your heart has one top spot. It does not have two. And either God will be there or money will be there, but they cannot both coincide. We will love one more than the other. So I have to talk about this. Another reason we have to address this is because we are some of the wealthiest people that have ever lived. Now, let me ask you, is it wrong to have riches? Not at all. Abraham, David, Solomon, they were all very rich and richer than us. But let me ask you another question. Will you be tempted by affluence? Will you be tempted by riches? Absolutely. Daily, regularly, all the time. And the only way to get past this temptation is to address it head on. We are some of the wealthiest people who've ever lived. Do you remember the argument against the 1%, the one percenters in America? When we were facing a recession and it was all those Wall Street bankers that have the 1%, do you know actually globally Americans are the 1%? If you make more than $52,000, we are the 1% of global wage earners across the world. Yes, we have to address this. The first takeaway is because our hearts are at stake. So you ready to get into it? You ready to perform this very difficult surgery? <laughs> I want to continue the conversation with this phrase. 
I don't know who the original author of this phrase is, but I've heard it many times. The idea that you cannot give, or you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Let's explore that a little bit. The, the first part, you can give without loving. Some of you experienced this past week for trick-or-treating. Um, I, I thought that this family won trick-or-treating. Uh, this is a high school buddy I had, um, Pac-Man, it's awesome. And what I recognize about kids coming to my door is that even if I don't love them, because I don't know them, I'm not trying to be cool, careless, uh, but I, I can still give to you. Uh, even if you're a teenager and I think you shouldn't be doing this anymore. Even if you're a parent holding an infant and I know who's eating that candy, I can still give to you w without love, right? But the second part is you cannot love some, something or someone w without giving to it. Now, now, some of you know this when it comes to courtship. Some of you remember romance, and, and you found that man or that woman, and, and, and when you found that woman, you, you bought stuff. You bought flowers and food, and you, you tried to wow her with a ring, right? And when you put a ring on it, that's awesome, right? Because uh, you love this, this person. Some of you parents know this with your kids. Why do infants ha have so much stuff? Why are the closets filled? Because you adore your kids, Maybe in this culture a little too much, but that's a different sermon for a different day. Um, yes, we adore these things. In fact, to be able to figure out an inventory about what you love, a very easy, non-emotional assessment of what you love, is to just look at where money and time is going. It's really interesting. If you would go back, and if you would, and, and I challenge you to do this, just look at your credit card statement. And if you would read it, some of you would find, wow, I... I'm in love with coffee. I, I am in love with, with good caffeine. Uh, some of you, what, what would you, I am in love with Amazon. There is a reason that they are building and taking over because I am a prime member and I just love that. Is it the, the, the next day? Oh, it's great. Some of you love sports. You look at it, wow, is that much for a Blackhawks game? I mean, it was worth it, but man, I love the Blackhawks, Right? Some of you go back and, and you look at the finances and you love your house, right? That's very clear. You love the car that you drive. That's clear by the monthly payment. We love all of these things. But if you do an inventory of both time and money, the question is, what would that simple inventory tell you about your heart for God? And so we do this series. The series is called 10 for 10, and the challenge is simply this, that we would give 10% of income for 10 weeks. That's the challenge. That you would look at what you're paid and, and deduce what is 10% and then faithfully give that for the next 10 weeks. Now here's what I know. Your salvation is not at stake when it comes to this. You are saved simply by the grace of God who loved to give you before you could ever give to him. Here's also what I know. No one in this church should be hoity-toity, holier than thou, saying I did the challenge and you did not. No. That is the wrong type of judging that God speaks against when he's talking about the plank and the speck. So we're not going to do that either. But instead of being scared by this challenge, do you know I actually came this morning excited by it? And, and let me tell you why. Because I think that there are blessings on the other end of this that God is chomping at the bit to give you. The primary blessing is finally peace over your financial circumstances. 
And some of you know what it is to go week to week, sometimes day by day, wondering if there is enough. I believe if you take God up on this challenge, you'll hear the psalmist say, you know what, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread, so you can bring it on. You can bring on a job change. You can bring on a different circumstance because I've seen my God's faithfulness and I have peace about it. That's what's hanging on the other end. Another thing that I truly believe that is hanging on the other end is financial order. Even though we are the most affluent who have ever lived, we have financial disarray like all get out. The average American carries $38,000 of non-mortgage related debt. That's incredible. And so I think on the other end of this is a different idea of contentment and joy. On the other end of this, maybe even a better plan when it comes to handling what God gave. I, I believe to this to such a great degree that, that sometimes as a pastor, as I look at people in financial circumstances, and, and, and here's what I know, they can come for all sorts of reasons, and we'll all face those pressures. I get it, I get it. But in general, when, when faced with that, sometimes I wonder, uh, as they ask me, what should I do, I, I sometimes have a question, well, where is your level of trust and generosity? Because I believe in this so much. But don't take my word for it. Take God's. Let's get into what he says. So our lesson for today is from uh, the book of Malachi. Uh, this is where uh, God promises blessing if the people simply trust God with what, what he gave them. Uh, we're going to read from Malachi chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 12. Here it is. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I love that passage because God promises, I'm not going to go off on you every time you sin. I'm still going to be a faithful and a gracious and a merciful God, and that should be clear to you as well. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. There is so much gospel there. Do you know if you're in Christ, this is not just for finances, but if you want to repent over anything, if you want to return to the Lord today, Guess what he wants to do? He wants to return to you in any and all degrees, whatever you're facing. How awesome is the Lord's heart. But you ask, how are do we return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? And he says simply, in tithes, 10% and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in the house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven. Pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Almighty. Did you see God's heart? How much he wanted to bless you on the other end? In fact, could you turn to your neighbor and just tell them, let's open the floodgates. Let's open the floodgates. Let's just experience that, right? Awesome. All right. So let's continue. And as we uh, dive into the word, uh, I have a quick financial question, uh, which is this. How much money would it take for you to live comfortably? How much would it take for you to retire comfortably, to live comfortably, for you not to feel the financial pressures and strains that are so common? 
I was watching TV and I heard of a new uh, type of retirement. The acronym was FIRE. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. They were saying that in order to do this, maybe at age 40 or, or even the 30s, uh, that you need to calculate your expenses in a year and have 25 times that amount. 25 times the amount that you spend in a year. That's how you get fired. Financial independence, retire early. When it comes to this question, what's really interesting is that in general, it, it gets the same response. Do you know what I believe the same response is when it comes to this question? The answer is more. <laughs> right? How, how much do I need to live comfortable? Well, more. More than I have right now. But then another experience we have is you've dreamed of more, and sometimes more came. Did you always feel more comfortable? Not always. See, what can happen is that our wages increase, and guess what also increases? Lifestyle. My wage increase, I get a better car, a bigger house, uh, nicer clothes, uh, better food, right? And, and those go in symmetry so that even though we get more and more and maybe live like never before, it doesn't feel like we're that much more comfortable. I was learning a little bit about this, and, and some earthly advice is to not have your lifestyle increase every time your, your income increases. In fact, I was learning from John Wesley, uh, a pastor uh, a few hundred years ago. And uh, he lived at the level of uh, $20,000, our equivalent today. $20,000 is where he kept his lifestyle. And every time he got an increase, he just gave away the increase every time. Uh, they say that the equivalent is that he ended his ministry getting uh, the equivalent of 160000 yet he was living at $20,000 uh, as far as his income level. Now, if you're looking for good information on that, we did a, a series called Breathing Room uh, that focused on financial margin, and, and that's really, really important. But even if you plan that way, I do believe that until you give to God first, you might not experience this comfortability. In fact, I was reading this, this last week from the book of Haggai. L let me give you this scenario. The Israelites had came back from captivity, and they had just rebuilt the walls in Jerusalem. And then the question was, what should we build next? Should we build our homes, or should we build God's temple? Guess what they wanted to build next? Their home, not God's temple. And here's what happened to those living at the time of Haggai. It says, you've planted much, but harvested little. You ever been to that grocery store? You come to the, 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 the checkout, and you have cold cuts and bananas, and you're like, it's how much? That, that's if you're shopping at Whole Foods, my bad joke. Anyway, um, uh, but, but it can happen, right? Uh, or, or this, you eat and never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Uh, some of you have that experience that every time you get paid, that money, it's already spent. I don't know if my bank account has holes in it. Now, why is this the case? People were saying, God, you come second. And we come first. And, and God addressed that. He says, why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. And so here's a principle. Without giving first fruits to God, the more you get, the less you will have. And here's what I believe it means fully. You're going to have less peace over the future. You're going to have less contentment over how much God gave. 
you're going to have less confidence in what God can do. That's a reality. It could also mean less stuff. As the riches of this world sprout wings and fly away. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You bought something that broke right away, something that was not usable. These are earthly treasures. I remember reading the book of Haggai when I came to this area. So we're an 11-year-old church plant. And when we came to the area, we didn't have an earthly house or a, a worship house. And it was interesting because we were looking at both of them kind of around the same time. And so God did this work on my heart as I was reading Haggai, as I was going through my devotions. And he was asking me, young man, what do you want better for and what do you want more for? For my house or for yours? For you or for me, young man? And it was a good question. I think it's a good question for us all. Who do you want to receive better? Do you want more for yourself or more for God? Some of you know what it is to plan wonderful, elaborate gifts for other people, which is a form of giving to yourself, especially if they're in your family. But when's the last time you made an elaborate plan saying, God, I want you to receive the finest of all that you gave to me? That's the opportunity. But what I know is that this is heart surgery. What I know is that we all wrestle with this on, on what extent or another. So how can we change our minds and truly repent? The only way I see this happening is by peering into the heart of God and seeing what you find there. What I find in the heart of God is someone who knew how to give even when he had no reason to love. One of my favorite passages says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When he had no reason to love us, yet he gave anyway. One of the things we recognize is that the house we live in, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, and the car we drive came from his hand. And guess what? Your father was happy to give. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. Which is why when we talk about money, we're not even talking about giving as much as returning to the one who gave. But some of you also know that this pales in comparison to the true treasure we have. For the greatest treasure we have is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who when we needed payment for sin, he paid for it in full through the blood that he shed. When we needed righteous robes, he lived perfectly each day, getting it right, so that those who have faith in him could be credited that righteousness. For us who feel defeated, we have the right to victory because he rose again. The greatest gift we have is Jesus Christ, the Savior. And if you hear nothing else, if you take nothing else away, if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, here's what you need to know. More than you ever give to God is what he gave to you in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And because of him, we are free. In fact, in Romans 8, it was put this way. Romans 8 says, He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you know what I find there? I find a no-lose scenario. 
I find an opportunity to trust my father who says, out of all that I gave, guess what I will continue to do? You cannot lose by putting your trust into me. And so I'm excited to talk about and consider first fruit giving. Now, what is first fruit giving? I'm just curious, how many of you grew up on a farm? I see one hand, maybe. Maybe two. I'm a city boy, and so some of these analogies are, are hard for us to understand. So I, I need to bring it to light. Let's say um, you were an apple picker. What is it to give first fruits? It's, it's to go to the harvest and say, okay, I've, I've picked the first of what we have, and say, God, here it is. I leave it here. Now, in the Old Testament, these offerings would also supply needs for the Levites who worked in the house of God. But, but consider what would happen. They would bring the first of the harvest, and they'd go back to their fields not knowing what was going to happen next. They didn't know if a storm would come and wipe out the rest of the crop. They didn't know if it was going to be a lean year or a bumper crop. They were in a position to then faithfully trust God. I gave it to you first, but you're going to supply my needs, right? Like, there'll be apples for me when I'm getting back. And it was a faith opportunity. For us, maybe don't live on a farm except for two. What does this look like? Well, it means that when we get paid, who do we want to go to first with that paycheck? And actually, there's an app for that. <laughs> if you go to the Amazing Love app, uh, there's this tool that lets you give on the 1st and the 15th, if that's when you get paid, lets you give every month on a certain date so that you can first go to God. And the benefit is found here. That giving first fruits is a way to trust God's provision more than your plan. And how much do we as Americans need to hear this? You ever met with a financial advisor who convinced you they had it all figured out? Now that financial advisor does not own as much as what God owns. Does not know the future as much as what God knows. Putting your trust in a financial advisor is not as wise as putting your trust in the God who will faithfully provide. And that's the opportunity afforded. To move your heart's dependence from one to the other. When I do this, I don't care who is in charge of the economy. I don't care what, again, the finances say. I trust God that he will provide for my needs. And then what does God say he'll do? Did you see it? Is, is God a, a miserly curmudgeon? Just, you know, good, because I don't want you to have anything. Is, is that what you heard scripture say? That's not what I heard. Test me. See if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to store it. Test me in what you find. And you know what Christians have found throughout the ages? That you cannot outgive the giver. In fact, maybe some of you have even heard that. Do you know why you've heard that? Because it's true. You cannot outgive the giver. And I see some smiles and nodding heads. You just simply can't. He owns it all, he sees it all. He's a good God. And so here's the opportunity. Giving first fruits to, the, to God, the more you give, the more you will have. And let me be clear, in the way of peace, in the way of joy, in the way of contentment. But don't be surprised if also in the way of more finances. I'm not saying it's the golden ticket. I'm not saying give God 10, he'll give you 100. Not what I'm saying, let me be clear. But don't be surprised if he would. And here's why. Let, let's just think about it. Some of you are managers. 
let's consider managerial, giving $20 to a child. Let's say we tell this child, go to the store, and for Thanksgiving, I want you to pick up potatoes and stuffing and also a gallon of milk. Let's say the child goes and they come back and they're Sour Patch Kids and a Beanie Boo and a magazine. Now, if that's the case, are you going to give another $20 to that same child and say, go try it again? I'm not. But if that child would come back and they gave you the stuffing and the potatoes and the gallon of milk and they gave you the receipt and they handed you every bit of change down to the last penny... Might you then give them a $50 bill and say, go try with some more? Might you at, at very base level just say, go do it again? God who knows. God who we cannot hide from. God who's not a curmudgeon. His grace doesn't work that way, but let's not fool ourselves. God who sees all that we're doing with what is his. Might he say, oh, I see a faithful manager. That's wonderful. Manage them well. Because here's a, another principle. A principle is that if you cannot be faithful with a little, you will not be faithful with more. And if you cannot be faithful with more, you will not be faithful with a little. They work both ways. It's the opportunity to get it right now, no matter the age. To just say, God, I depend in you for what you have given. And the blessing? Hmm. I've read books of, of millionaires who gave away millions to uh, a ministry, homes away to the homeless, and, and, and they speak about how God, again, gave them blessing. But, but instead of using an earthly example, I, I wanted to use um, an Old Testament one, still earthly, uh, of David. I wanted to bring you back to when David wanted to give a great gift to the Lord. Here's the scenario. He was sitting in a palace of cedar, and it wasn't sinful for him to have it. He was king. And as he was looking around, he's like, what does God have? God had a tent. And he said, man, I want to give God something worthy of God, something worthy of his name. And you know his dream? His dream was this. It's what we know as Solomon's temple. While he was not the one to build it, it was definitely his brainchild. So he gathered the blueprints. He gathered the gold. They gathered so much precious material, they actually had to tell the people, stop giving. We have enough. That's incredible. And this was his desire. God, you're going to get my best, my finest. Now, I heard that story, but then I read it recently again. And what I was struck by is God's response. Do you know what God said in response to David's desire? He basically said, you want to build a house for me? L look what I'm going to do. The Lord declares to you that he himself will establish a house for you. You can't outgive the giver, David. That, that, that was a good effort. But you know what I want to do instead? I want to flip this blessing and I give you a blessing that is beyond comprehension. The Savior is going to come from your line. The child that comes next, I will love with all of my heart. You had some desire for me, but what I desire for you is greater still. And that's why I'm excited about this series. Because on the other end of this challenge, we might have Christians saying, man, I never knew this kind of peace over the future. Never felt this way. Man, I never knew how much God had already given me. Man, I didn't know what contentment could be like until trusting God with what is his. But that's just what God will do in you, and that's better by far. 
What God will do in you is the main reason we talk about this. But I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about what God could do through you. Uh, Let me say it this way. This challenge is primarily about what God can do in you, but it is also about what God can do through you. Now, this past week, I was reading an article about if every Christian would tithe. If every Christian would tithe, they say there would be $165 billion of surplus. That's incredible. Now, to get a landscape, um, and I'm not trying to do a guilt trip, but, but the, the state of things is that most Americans give about 2.5% of their stuff away. 2.5%. Also, in the Great Depression, it was on average um, 3.3%. So as we've gotten more affluent, we've actually given less proportionally away. Um, so on average, 2.5%. I've also found that it is the rare pastor who is living like a millionaire, um, driving a Maserati in a mansion. Um, what I've uh, recognized is that uh, many churches are faithful managers of funds. In, in fact, many churches are doing things off of shoestring budgets and, and trying to, again, make money go as far as it possibly can. That's been more of my experience, although I don't know what's in your head or your experience. But, but we, we got to this idea of what happens if every Christian would tithe? What, what could happen? Here are some statistics. With $165 billion, $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. And $100 to $110 billion would still be left for additional ministry expansion. Do you have zeal for the house of God? That's the question. I do. I've lived in an age where I want to see God get our greatest and our best. And what I recognize about ministries that operate is that the ministries that are usually bringing the brightest and the best are also the ministries where they're getting financial support to the tune of brightest and the best. There is a correlating factor between how you support the church of God and the quality of ministry that you get from the church of God, and that is true. So what could God do through you? That's a great dream. What vibrancy of the gospel could we still have in our age? where resources are not limited. As I was considering this, the words of Russell Wilson were coming to my mind. Russell Wilson is a Seattle Seahawks quarterback who, before their Super Bowl, asked a simple question, why not us? And I have that same spirit, and here's why I know, because this house of God has already been blessed by generous tithers. And we have a track record of that, and it's amazing. It's wonderful how God has provided through those generous gifts. But what if we could break the mold even more? What if it wasn't 10 to 25% of a church that was tithing? What if it was more like 50 to 70 to 80 to 90%? What could God do through the sharing of the gospel in this house, in this place? Who else could we reach? I don't know about you, but I'm up for the challenge. May the Spirit so prompt and lead you. Amen.